All right. Man, we want you to jump into all of that stuff. There's a lot going on. And uh, I want you to take a Bible or on your smartphone or if you have the Bible on your dumb phone, wherever you can find it, go to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today, Matthew chapter 1. And uh, once again, I just want to welcome you here. Thank you for being a part of this community of faith and for uh, jumping in. Especially want to thank those of you on the front row. Uh, The front row always fills up last, but I have a promise that I will give you about the front row. So if you're ever looking for a good seat, um, I do have an occasional spitball, okay? It just just happens. There's no way to stop that, but it never travels more than that first square of carpet. So you're safe on the front row. That's my assurance to you. Thanks for having the courage to sit there. Uh, Man, I'm really glad that you're here. This Christmas, we've been looking at a mosaic of the Messiah. We're celebrating the coming of King Jesus, the promised anointed Messiah of God. And the way we're putting together this framework is going through the four Gospels. These are the first four books of the New Testament. It's the, Matthew, it's the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them kind of frame Jesus for their audience in a way that's a little different from each other. And so we're looking at the framework that they use to help us understand who this Jesus is and how he makes a difference in the world. So Uh, It's been really fun so far. I hope you'll continue to stay involved with us. Also, I want you to know there's a lot of cool things coming in the pike for next year. Uh, I just finished rewriting Growth Track 1. So if you've already been through the Growth Tracks, I would encourage you to consider going through Growth Track 1 again. Or uh, they will be produced in video later, probably January, I mean, uh, February or March. You can wait till they do that and you can do it on your own time. But if you've not been through Growth Tracks, they start again in January on the 7th, I believe, and it's a great way to find out everything about Summit and how you can connect to us and we can connect to you. Um, It's really good stuff, so looking forward to that. Uh, And in February and March, we're going to have a great experience together. I could sell you all day. It's going to be awesome. Glad you're here. Uh, Buckle in, and if there's a way we can serve you, help you connect, let us know. All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 1. And uh, there's a lot of words here, so we're going to shorten the reading just a little bit. We're going to start in verse 1 of Matthew 1, and then we're going to drop down to verse 17. Okay? So it is our custom to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're willing and able to do so. And here we go, Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy, that word also means the origin story. This is the origin story of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now dropping to verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Then verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. In the ancient world, you were considered married when you began your engagement. You didn't have the uh, rights and privileges of marriage, but to end an engagement was a legal divorce. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. That's the word of God. Thank you. You can be seated. So uh, each of the gospel writers frame the gospel differently, and uh, Matthew gives us a really great thing. Now, here's the, here's the thing about today. Um, as a, as a, a Bible teacher, you're always nervous that people will just give me the goods, man, tell me, what, tell me what helps me now, give me a quick fix, give me the TED Talk, and send me on my way. So today's a little bit different because we need to understand some theology. Matthew Instead of giving us just a historical outlay of how this all took place, which Luke does uh, more than anybody else, he gives a theological framework for the coming of Jesus. And he starts it off in verse 1. The, the origin of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the son of David, Jesus the son of Abraham. So there's like this thing being set up right from the very first sentence. And Matthew quotes more of the Old Testament than all the other three gospel writers combined. He is going painstakingly to connect this story to the origin of God's plan. So here's what I want you to see today is that uh, the big idea today is that God is greater. This is what you're going to walk out being assured of. God is greater. He greater than what? Greater than everything. He's greater than anything you face. He's greater than any challenge in your life. He's greater than any demon in hell. He is greater than any uh, challenge that comes on this earth. He's greater than whoever's in the White House. He's greater than the job you're in or the career you're in or the promotion that you need or the house that you need to find or the marriage that's on the rocks. Listen, he's greater than everything. And so here's how we're going to get our arms around this. Matthew says three theological truths here in really through chapter two, which we'll get to, that God has a plan, God always keeps his promise, and God has governance over the entire world. He governs the whole world. These are going to help us to rest in the reality that God is greater. He's, he's greater. So here we go. Let's talk about God has a plan. Matthew, uh, as I said, does some theology here. So he says he's Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one is what the word literally means. And this is the one that had been foretold for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And Matthew is attaching Jesus to the covenant-making God of their ancestors. From Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God began to make covenants to try to restore people back to himself. This has been his heart from the beginning. And so uh, you have significant covenants throughout the Old Testament. You have, and, and all of this leads to this promised Messiah. There's going to come one who will reign forever and ever and who will restore all that's been broken and destroyed by our sin. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Hundreds of years. He's coming. Thousands of years. He's coming. So you have, uh, you have uh, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, those are in reverse order. The son of Abraham, and the genealogy begins then in verse 3. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and he goes through the genealogy leading from Abraham to Jesus. So he wants you to see that Jesus is, he is the one who was promised and who God had been setting the table for for thousands of years. So uh, father of Abraham, Abraham is the father of our faith. 
It's really interesting if you do a deep dive on Abraham, you know, because of this promise of a child, and then they get this boneheaded idea to impregnate Hagar uh, because God wasn't delivering on his promise fast enough. And, and so you have uh, Ishmael born through Hagar, but here's the bottom line of all that, that uh, the three greatest religions in the world all trace their faith to Abraham. Muslims, Islam traces to Abraham through Ishmael. The Jews trace to Abraham through the same genealogy we do, and the Christians do. So the majority of faith in the world is rooted in Father Abraham. And Abraham uh, sets the table for us because it says about Abraham, God considered him righteous because he believed God. This is all God has ever wanted is for us to believe him. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. Because of you, I am going, because you believe me, I am going to bless the entire world through your offspring. I know you don't even have a kid yet. I know your wife has already gone through uh, menopause, but I'm going to give you a miracle baby. And through that son, I'm going to set off a chain of events through hundreds and hundreds of years where the entire world is going to be blessed because of my favor on your life. This is that. Then he says, the son of David. Now, uh, David was King David. And God says about David, why David really had a special place in God's heart is because David has a heart after my heart. This is what God said about him. Now, David did some train wreck, stupid stuff, uh, but his heart beat fast for God. He wrote most of the Psalms, and so you can see his heartbeat for God, and God made a covenant with David. He said, David, one of your heirs will be the king, the Messiah, who will change the entire world. So Matthew is showing us that through Abraham, through David, uh, God is delivering on his plan. God's plan is still in play. Now, uh, there's a character in between David and Abraham named Moses. And here's what's fascinating about Matthew if you do a deep dive on this. So please don't, don't go to sleep on me. This really matters. This will really undergird your faith. Matthew is wrapped up in the story of Moses, and he sees Jesus, and he presents Jesus to us as the greater Moses. Matthew, his book is divided into five logical segments. Anybody who studies Matthew breaks it into five parts, which match the five books of the first five books of the Bible. They're called the Pentateuch or the Torah, and Moses wrote those. Moses comes out of Egypt as one who's leading people out of slavery. Jesus will go to Egypt here shortly in chapter 2, and he will come out of Egypt to deliver all of us from our sin. The Israelites are baptized into Moses, 1 Corinthians 10 says, as they cross the water. It says they were baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the water. In Moses' great leadership life, God led them with a cloud by day and a fire by night. And 1 Corinthians 10 says all the Israelites were baptized into Moses as they followed the cloud and went through the water, the parting of the waters. Jesus, we are going to be baptized by faith into Christ Jesus. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus will spend his first 40 days of public ministry in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. All of this parallel between Moses and Jesus. Moses goes on the mountain and receives the law from God. Jesus will go on to a mount and give the greatest segment of teaching the world has ever known called the Sermon on the Mount, where he explains how the law of God now is lived because the kingdom of God has come. And so the new law, the law of the Spirit, is introduced to us by Jesus on a mountain. And so you have 
Moses, and not only that, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that it was Jesus who was providing for the Israelites and Moses through that entire journey. Manna, miracle bread from heaven, Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, They were baptized, uh, they were given water out of the rock, and that rock was Christ. The New Testament shows us that everything Moses, God was doing through Moses, was actually a revelation of Jesus. And so Matthew is saying, listen, God has a plan. It's a very old plan, and it's an unstoppable, unshakable plan. Many of us, when we think about God's plans, we say some stupid things. I have this cartoon I really like. This guy's laying in a hospital bed, and this woman says, hey, this is all part of God's plan. I think I have it for you. Uh, I love this, this comic. And there's God with a whiteboard. Let's see, create the universe, give Steve a tumor. Now, I'm, I'm a little dark humored. That, that's funny to me. It's funny to me because people, when they think about God's plans, this is the way we think. The universe revolves around us, and God has a plan for us. Now, that would be the lower story of God, but there's this upper story of God, this plan of God. Let me just refer to the, uh, let me refer to the genealogy for a second as we go to point two. First of all, God has a plan. That plan can't be stopped, and that leads us to point two, which God keeps his promises. He promised to Abraham. He promised to David. He promised in Genesis 3. He promises us, man, I'm going to deliver you from your sin. He tells Joseph, have this baby. This is the miracle of the incarnation. God keeps his promises. And here's the thing about God's plan and your sin. We have this idea that my sin is so monumentally big, how could God forgive it? My sin is so monumentally big, even the blood of Jesus can't penetrate it. My sin is so monumentally big, I'm certainly altering the plans of God. Here's the truth about you. Watch the genealogy. I'm going to show you just one, two, three, four quick deals in the genealogy. I love how the Bible tells us the truth about how ugly and messy life is. Uh, Verse three, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you don't know that story, Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. And because uh, Judah did not keep his promise to give one of his sons to her uh, because her husband died, she faked, dressed herself as a prostitute while Judah's on a road trip, and he hooks up with this prostitute, impregnates her. When they find out about her pregnancy, they they call Judah up because he doesn't know that's who she is. She's wearing a veil. She fakes her. She disguises herself. And they say, hey, this woman has been, your daughter-in-law has been caught in adultery and she's got a baby. She's pregnant. He says, well, let's bring her out and stone her. She says, well, by the way, he had left her his cord and staff. This is the person who got me pregnant. He's like, you know, it's like the Burt Simpson or the whatever Burt's dad is. What's his dad's name? Anyway, it's like that. Don't, uh, you know, Judah is caught. So here's this This father-in-law who impregnates his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. I mean, this is a messy story in the genealogy of Jesus. How about dropping down to verse 5? Salmon, the the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know who Rahab is? She is a prostitute uh, in Jericho. And she hides the spies, so God promises her, I'm going to take care of you because you defended my people. And here's a prostitute in the family tree of the Messiah, okay? Then you go down to verse 
continuing in that verse, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess who's not a Jew, who's not, you know, legit, but she has faith in God and she gives her life in response to God's faithfulness. She makes it into the family tree of Jesus. Then you drop down to David. What a mess David was. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, God doesn't ever mention Bathsheba as David's wife, ever in the scriptures, except in the story of it actually being told. She's always referred to as the woman who had been Uriah's wife. God honors the fact that David murdered her husband so he could take his wife. And her, the, the husband that he murdered had been one of his mighty men. If you read in the Old Testament, David's mighty men of valor, there's like 31 of them. Uriah is one of those. He does this to a guy who risked his life for him because he's got the hots for his wife and got her pregnant. So to cover his sin, he has Uriah come home from battle so he could fake, well, maybe he got her pregnant. He doesn't even sleep with her out of his own integrity about his men are at war. How could I do that? David has him killed. Now I take the widow and maybe they'll just think the baby came early. You see the darkness of this? This is all in the genealogy. What does all that mean? It means that God's plan is going to be carried out and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So here's the truth about you. There's two truths about you that I think are significant. One is you are like a grain of sand on a 500-mile beach of sand. That's you and your proper perspective in the world. Listen, you're a tiny thing. One of the ways I say this to myself is the world is made up, with one exception, the world is made up entirely of others. I'm the one exception. We tend to think that the world, because we're in our life, that the world revolves around our life and we get myopic there. One thing that's true about you, you're just one grain of sand on a 500-mile beach full of sand. And number two about you, God loves that grain of sand. God loves you. God loves you. So do you matter? Of course you matter. Is God involved in your story? Of course he is. But let me tell you something about your story. You can't stop the plan of God. God's plans are not somehow handicapped because of your messy journey. I love that. Why? Because God keeps his promises, man. He keeps his promises. And how does he keep this promise? God himself places himself by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a 15-year-old girl in a little stick town. The miracle of the incarnation. Back to the story, the, the connection to the whole story. Why Mary? Why Joseph? Joseph is in the lineage of David. The Messiah must come from the lineage of David. Guess who else is from the lineage of David? Mary. This way, whether you say, well, he's not really in the line of David because Joseph wasn't his physical dad, his biological dad. No, but Mary is also in the line of David. The Messiah comes from the line of David. God is keeping his promise through all of our messy, chaotic stories. I love that. God has a plan. You can trust that plan. It's the overarching plan of God. You are one of billions, man. When we get to heaven, we are going to stand with people of every nation, tongue, and tribe, and we're going to give praise to God, and we're going to be a part of something so huge. And yet, God does care about the details of your story. 
He does care about the strife you're having in that relationship. He does care about the sin that you're wrestling with. He does care about the habits and the hangups and the hurts in your life. He does care about meaning and purpose in your life. And his story is unstoppable no matter how bad you mess this up. And he's going to keep his promises. Why? Because he's a God of covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with Moses. And now he's made a covenant through the person of Jesus. And he will keep his covenant. That's who he is. And so we rest in that. And we rest in the fact that he is a promise keeper. He will keep his promises to us. Now, the third thing I want to show you comes from chapter 2, which we did not read. And that is that, so God has a plan. God keeps his promises, and God governs the entire world. I have to talk about the Magi. So in chapter 2, I'm going to read this to you, and you can follow along if you're still in your Bible there. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, Magi, we historically call them wise men, and we typically think there are three of them, three wise men. We think of that because they brought three gifts, and we think that each one of them brought a gift. And so the historical view is that there were three wise men. They're actually way different than that. They are Magi. They are people from Babylon, from the east, who are astrologers, astronomers. Uh, They are sky watchers. They are fortune tellers. And they are uh, advisors to their king. These people are very highly regarded. Uh, Some people call them kingmakers because every king in the future in Babylon had to be blessed by the Magi or they were not fit to be kings. These are weighty, uh, intelligent, and mystical, spiritual. Uh, The ancient world saw the world as metaphysical. That is that God and angels and demons and life and death is all happening at the same time. Uh, It's a very metaphysical world, and so they were watching the stars. It's interesting, when you go back to Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel is a guy who gets sent to Babylon as a captive. One of the Israelites, when they were held captive, they get sent to Babylon, and Daniel's one of them, and he becomes a magi. In fact, God uses him in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 5 to interpret dreams and and to reveal revelation from God to the king, and so David is made head of the magi. So all the way back in Daniel's life, now we're talking 1,000 years before Jesus, Daniel is writing with the Magi these records about one day a Messiah will come. And Daniel is the one used by God hundreds of years before the Messiah to prepare these pagan astronomers that Jesus will one day come. And here they are, these Magi see his star. Now, some say that planets aligned Some say there's a star God created just for this period of time. I don't know how it happened, but the God of the universe controls the stars of the sky to communicate to people who are pagans, who don't know about the the history of the Jews, who are not Jews, who don't consider themselves God's people. They see this thing and they decide, let's follow that star. That's the star of the king of the Jews. Now, we think of three men on camels making their way. And if you have a nativity scene, it probably has the three magi or wise men at the nativity scene, which is completely unrealistic. 
Let's keep going. I'll tell you why. When, the king, when King Herod heard, and by the way, these guys show up. They're not just three guys on camels. They're an entourage. These are important, weighty people. This is likely a very large entourage, including some military personnel. They're on a mission, and uh, they're wealthy, and they're important. And it takes them two years to get there. Now watch this. When King Herod heard this, this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. They got to Jerusalem and they thought there would be a party going on. They thought the star has come. What, what we heard about a thousand years ago has finally happened. Jerusalem's going to be going crazy right about now. They show up and there's no party. There's no parades. There's no excitement. And they say to King Herod, we came to worship the king of the Jews. Well, Herod had just been named king of the Jews by Marcus Antilius. And so he's like, well, I'm the king of the Jews. So King Herod freaks out. And so Herod was such an evil king, very insecure, murdered his enemies, murdered his family members. In fact, the story is told that King Herod had imprisoned two of the most popular people in Jerusalem so that when he died, those people would be killed on the day of his death so that the whole city would weep. This is how just like evil this guy is. When King Herod heard about this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Hey, what did the prophets say? Matthew is connecting this to the whole story of God. They said, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem and land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Bethlehem and Judah, by the way, those words mean bread and praise. Out of the land of bread and praise, God is going to bring the bread of life to whom we will all praise. It's an amazing, God is just in the details of his story. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. This is important. He asked the Magi, when exactly did that star show up? Because of the information they give him, he's going to, if you go on in chapter 2, he's going to murder Every Israeli boy in Bethlehem, two years old and under. Why? Because according to when the star appeared, Jesus by now would be two years old. So uh, to, again, take out his enemy, this is part of the Christmas story we never tell. It doesn't really fit going, you know, sitting around your Christmas tree talking about all the boys who were slaughtered because Jesus had come. Another Moses parallel, when Moses is born, the enemy's trying to wipe out the future, the deliverer of Israel by killing all the boy children in Israel. Moses was secretly spared, set into the river, and rescued. Uh, so the enemy trying to wipe out a plan of God. Uh, okay. He says to them, hey, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I may go and worship him. Yeah, right. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them, it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, the word there is house, that's how we know he's not still in the manger, he's not still at the nativity scene, he's now in a house, and he's approaching two years of age. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. 
What's all the point of all of that? God governs the whole world. Not only can your sin not stop the great move of God, the redemptive work of God, not even the sin in the genealogy of Jesus could stop. And by the way, if you saw at the end of the genealogy, it said, there, it said uh, uh, this is an important detail, verse 17, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 generations more from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations more from the exile to the Messiah. What's that mean? It means God doesn't do random, man. God has a plan. He's working his plan. That plan is unstoppable. The sin of the people in the genealogy, Jesus couldn't stop it. You know, I tease a lot. People say, what's your family of origin like? I say, my family tree has no branches. We are rednecks, man. It's just a trunk. Uh, my family tree can't stop what God wants to do in my life. And the genealogy of Jesus can't stop what God wants to do with his life. God's plan cannot be stopped. It's the upper story of God and it's on schedule and it's unstoppable. God's using the promises he made to unveil his story and he governs the whole world, man. If he wants to produce a star to point people who don't even know God toward the Messiah, he will do that. Some of the favorite things God has ever done that I love is like there's these enemies that are going to wipe out Israel and God, you know, creates sound in the trees of the enemy's camp and it sounds like they're surrounded and they're going to be killed. So they get up and they run for their lives. Other time, uh, they all have this dream in Gideon. Uh, they have this dream that a giant loaf of bread rolled down the hill and crushed them. Every man in the camp had the same dream. Like God can do anything. He can do anything. So you need to know this. God has a plan and you're in that plan. Your lower story, your grain of sand story matters to God. He's in that one too. But this one, your little story, my little story, find our meaning in the big story. I can rest in the work of God's redemptive work in my life because my story is a part of that story. And that story began before Genesis chapter 1. That story has been told and prophesied and promised and, and demonstrated for thousands of years. Relax, man. Relax. God has you right in his hand. He's paying attention. This is why, you know, uh, when you're a parent and you have a little kid and they start freaking out about something and you're realizing, man, you're freaking out about that. And you'll say to the kid, you're tired, aren't you? I'm not tired, right? Because they're losing their biscuits over something so stupid. This is what we are too. We do that before God. And God's saying, you know, hey, I got a plan that I've been showing you for thousands of years. I'm right on schedule. And if I need to create a star, if I need to use pagans, I can even use evil people to accomplish my plan. Uh, God says uh, to, about Pharaoh, I raised him up for this hour. I use people who reject me. I use people who hate me. I use everybody's life to unfold my story. I've got it under control. He governs the whole world, man. What does all that mean to you? It means you can relax and you can rest in the sufficiency of God's plan. You can rest in the Messiah, King Jesus, who is the, really the hinge point of God's whole plan. The plan isn't stopped yet. There's still more to come. We're told about more of the plan. We don't have to worry about the future either. We don't worry about the past because it's all wrapped in God's plan. We don't have to worry about the future either. Because God has already showed us what the future is too. And now we're at that 
We're at that fulcrum part of the story. The coming of Jesus, we're never told to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We're told to celebrate his resurrection. And so we celebrate his birth. It's a big deal. It's a hinge point. But it's not the climax of the story. His resurrection is a bigger climax in the story. And his return where he redeems everything, where a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation, and it all gets started up with incredible joy, no cancer, no death, no tears, no sin. We don't even need the sun and the moon and the stars because the glory of God will light up the city. I mean, there's a thing coming. So you find yourself in the story of God and you calm down and you say, man, what I'm going through is messy and it's hard. And part of this ditch I dug with my own two hands. But God is bigger than this. His plan is unstoppable. He keeps his promise. And he can govern the entire world. Remember Isaiah 9? That's what he referred to as it said in the prophet, as the prophet has said. Unto us a child is born. The son of God is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Rest in that. Celebrate that. Find your peace in that. Find your place in that. It's going to feel like sometimes that your story is the only story you can hear because the noise is so loud or the pain is so intense. And what you need to do in that moment is put that story back into God's story and recognize there's a bigger thing happening here. And I have, find my hope in that. That's why we grieve when we have people we, we lose. But we don't grieve like people who have no hope because we know the rest of God's plan. And so we have hope there. So here's the, here's the response for you today. Two of them. I'm going to give you one now. And then I'm going to come back in a minute and give you the second one and bless you out. The first response is rest in the God who has a plan, who keeps his promises, who governs the world the whole world. Rest in him. And our worship team is going to help you do that. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask you to just sit back and take in. I love that phrase, take in. That's why I love baseball. You don't go to any other sport in the world and take in a game, but you take in a baseball game. I want you to take in what you're about to see and hear as our worship team sings about the sovereign God of the universe and his faithfulness to us in the middle of it. So I want you to relax. You can sing along if you know the song, uh, but I mainly want you to just reflect. And there's a video package that Andrew has put together with this, and it's going to move you. It's going to inspire you about the faithfulness of our God. So here's the first response, and I, 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 want, you, I want you to lean into this. I want you to rest in the sufficiency of God. He's got your life well in hand. Matthew wants you to rest in this, that your life is connected to thousands of years of God's redemptive story. It's right on schedule. It can't be stopped. You are a part of a team that cannot lose. And that, that God that brought Jesus for us, man, he loves you. And he's also working out in the lower story, his redemptive plan in your life. So I just want you to rest, okay? Let me pray for you, and then I'm gonna invite you just to take this in and to assume whatever posture is helpful to you, okay? If during that song you're so moved, you wanna go and take communion, it's available on either side of the room. 
if in the middle of this song you're so moved that you want someone to pray for you and to help carry your load, we have prayer volunteers that'll be on either side of the room and they'll go there and be ready for you. Or you can just relax and take this in and worship the God who has a plan, who keeps his promises, and who can move the entire world anytime he needs to, to accomplish his will. Let's pray about that and then take this in and worship God. Lord, we love you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you that the world doesn't revolve around me. Thank you that there's a bigger thing, there's a bigger God, there's a bigger purpose, there's a bigger story. Help us to find our proper place in the story of God and to rest in the sufficiency and the power and the unstoppable redemptive mission of God, that we can rest in that. Help us right now, we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.